Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a pilot program is being launched to help historically black colleges and universities implement new plans for returning students and staff back to campus. This problem is not going to go away in December and January. If you want to start planning now for how to have your campus open in January and have a safe place for students to go and learn, then you know COVID testing has to be a part of it. And there's planning we can do now to make that happen. That conversation with Dr. Blythe Adamson, an infectious disease epidemiologist and testing for America advisor is coming up in just a moment. And speaking of those institutions of higher learning, the latest White House Coronavirus Task Force reports the spread of COVID-19 at colleges could reverse recent gains. Now, WAB News obtained the report earlier today, and officials ranked Georgia 12th in the country for new infections per 100,000 people. That's during the week leading up to September 6th. Just a few weeks ago, Georgia led the country in new cases. Now, at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 285,350 total cases in the state, and there are 25,589 hospitalizations. Of those, 4,698 are ICU admissions. 6,070 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, this latest White House report also indicates Georgia overall as a state. Well, the latest COVID-19 numbers are promising, citing, quote, progress is evident and needs to continue and ensure no reversal of hard fault gains, close quote. The report recommends colleges and universities in Georgia increase testing and isolation to prevent the spread from students to local communities and hometowns. Now, over at Georgia Southern University, located in Statesboro, the school has reported 363 new confirmed coronavirus cases during the third week of classes, that report being released just days ago. Joining me now to discuss this is Andy Cole, editor-in-chief of Georgia Southern student newspaper, The George. And you might recall that Andy joined me just a week ago with some other students. Andy, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So now this 363 new confirmed cases might be alarming to some, but let's be really clear. This is actually a dramatic decrease in the number of confirmed cases that the university has been reporting on a weekly basis. Still high, though, for some folks. That's right. Yeah, it is a a decrease from week two. Week one, we saw 71. Week two, we saw 508. And then, as you said, week three, we saw 363. That totals to about 950 cases so far. And Georgia Southern does not lead the university system either in, in case numbers, um, but but it is still a lot of students. Let me ask you this, Andy, through your lens as a journalist covering this, and these are also your fellow students, are you starting to see more students wearing masks and practicing social distancing, or is it just still just kind of at the same level? I'm not sure that, that the students are looking at these numbers and being as um, shocked as other people are. Uh, now we are seeing a uh, record amount of readership. So we know that the people are reading our stuff and new people are reading our stuff every single day. But students, I'm not sure that, that the number 950 or 363 or 508 or whatever it be, I'm not sure that they see that and they go, whoa, mm-hmm. I need to you know, stay inside. Professors and, and other campus community members, maybe, but. I'm not sure that that that's how it is for students. Let's back up for a minute for our listeners who may have been missing this story. Georgia Southern University, you all have in-class instruction, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's considered face-to-face, but me personally, I only have one class in person. The rest are over Zoom. 
And what's your approximate enrollment at Georgia Southern on campus anytime? I believe it's 26,500, but I'm, I may be off by a couple thousand. And to your knowledge, Andy, there's been just one reported death among the staff. Is that correct? That's right. It was uh, Dr. Tim Pearson, and he passed away actually before classes resumed um, at the end of July this year. Georgia Southern releasing these numbers. Are they releasing these numbers to you all, or, or is it accessible online? How are students and faculty and staff and everyone else able to get these numbers on a weekly basis? Yeah, so prior to the beginning of courses, Georgia Southern was not releasing these numbers. We had to request them on a weekly basis, which we were, and, and we were getting those numbers. Um, and then after pleas from the campus community, Georgia Southern began releasing those numbers to the public. And they release those every Monday at noon on Georgia Southern's mm-hmm. website. Now, Andy, we've heard that some institutions are going to offer testing for students even twice a week at Georgia Southern. Is that available to students and faculty and staff? Yeah, the, the testing capabilities are, it's an interesting question that you bring that up. Uh, uh, health services provides testing for those that have symptoms, um, but they only have so much capacity. So you'll actually look, if you look on Georgia Southern's website uh, every Monday, they'll have two different numbers for you. They'll have university confirmed cases and self-reported cases. And, and the difference is there, you'll always see less university confirmed than there are self-reported because health services simply doesn't have the capacity to test as many students as they should or as they could be. Um, but the local Department of Public Health is offering testing mm-hmm. and they actually just announced the last hour of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday are available for George Southern students, faculty, and staff uh, without an appointment. Um, I got actually a COVID test last week and I was in and out in 20 minutes, tested negative, thankfully. But um, you know, the DPH has much higher capacity than, than George Southern Health Services does. And Andy, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Statesboro, what county is that in? That's in Bullitt County, uh, which is about 35, 45 minutes from Savannah. Right now, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, Bullitt County just has under 2,500 confirmed cases, only 22 deaths, say only, and just under 125 hospitalizations. What do you know about the county in, in general or, or Statesboro? Are we seeing the residents and citizens practice social distancing? Are you seeing folks wear masks outside of the university area? Yeah, so Statesboro, actually, before we started school, Statesboro, the city, uh, enacted a mask ordinance, ordinance rather. Uh, and, and what's interesting, though, is, is a lot of places of business are, are, are adhering to that. But a lot of them also are saying, we don't adhere to that at all. Mm-hmm. There's no need to wear a mask in here. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm seeing it any more or any less than I am when I'm around other students. Um, so that's it, a difficult question because if you're familiar with Statesboro, Bullitt County, the campus area is very um, isolated compared to the rest of Bullitt County. Mm-hmm. Andy, look, I, w- I used to be a college student a long time ago. We know the fall is coming up. Hey, homecoming, all those activities. As of right now, in terms of student life, what are you hearing? Well, uh, Greek life, after actually our reporting, Greek life decided to go virtual inst- until October 1st. Um, and so that aspect of student life has changed, you know, on the record. Um, but I'm hearing things like, oh, yeah, my frat is paying for this party. And it's not a frat party, but it is. Um, and so there's some discrepancies there. There may not be an official party, but there are still, as I mentioned to you last week, there's still parties going on. There's still social aspects of college still going on. Bars are still open or actually reopened. Mm-hmm. Um, they also closed <laughs> for a week after our reporting. Um, and, uh, you know, however, you know, the official sanctioned events, those are, you know, gone or modified extremely. Football starts, I believe, this week. Has the university said anything about, will they ask folks to social distance at the games? Yeah, so, so Paulson Stadium is going to be at 25% capacity, mm-hmm. um, which is good. And students, uh, for the first time, are having to use a student lottery uh, to get their tickets. Uh, it used to be that you could just show your Eagle ID, your, your campus card, and get right into the game. But that's, that's uh, no longer the case. Um, and then season ticket holders as well. Uh, are guaranteed seats, but uh, it'll be an interesting environment 
uh, for sure, <laughs> football games. My, how things have changed since March, huh? And before I let you go, you all have been covering this, the George Ann, which is the university student newspaper. I imagine this is still the biggest story you all are covering. But you've had some also some some social justice protests taking place down there, too, as well. Absolutely. And we've seen that you're absolutely right. COVID-19 is our top story, but social justice is, is a close number two. Um, the football players actually just last week organized a protest um, and, and they were in Sweetheart Circle, all socially distanced, all wearing masks um, and, and protest. I mean, we saw over the summer a lot of um, racially charged incidences mm-hmm. um, from students, whether they be incoming or current students. And, and we reported on those. And, and um, you know, 2020 will be remembered, whether it be for COVID-19 or, or, or racist incidents or, you know, it, it will not be forgotten. What's been the response to the student athletes and to the other protests over there in Statesboro? So actually, any form of protest, um, for example, the American Association of University Professors sent us a letter to the editor um, that ended up garnering a statement of support from hundreds of other professors across the state. Um, and so far, and last time we checked, the university has not responded to the AAUP. Um, and, and, and for that matter, they haven't responded to our requests either. Um, so as far as the university is concerned, uh, there's no response. Hmm. Um, but, but as far as, as what they're actually doing, that you know, only time will tell what, hmm. what, what's going on uh, because of it. Andy Cole, editor-in-chief of the George Ann at the Georgia Southern University student newspaper. Andy, thanks so much for taking time and telling our listeners what's happening in Statesboro. We really appreciate it. You stay safe. Absolutely. Thank you. You too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. On this program, and I know many of you follow it, and I appreciate that, you know I've talked with a lot of area college presidents about decisions to have students and faculty return to campus or not, or even a combination of both. Now, many of those college presidents told me the reopening plans are fluid and that they will continue to look at the data and the science to decide when to allow students and staff back on campus for in-person instruction. Well, there's a new nonprofit that's trying to help schools and businesses reopen safely during the pandemic. It's called Testing for America. Now, this organization has also recently launched a pilot program to help historically black colleges and universities reopen safely. And of course, here in the Georgia area, we have four of them. We have Morehouse, we have the Morehouse School of Medicine, we have Spelman, and we have Clark Atlanta. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Dr. Blythe Adamson. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist, an economist, and a Testing for America advisor. Dr. Adamson, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. When you think about when we first heard of this coronavirus, and then now in September, and the number of confirmed cases in this nation, which is, what, 6 million, and the number of deaths, what do you make of all this? Mm. Well... You know, I'm I'm a math modeler. You know, I spend a lot of my time writing equations, figuring out what the course of these things look like. And a lot of this burden is what we expected. Um, but there's all we also use math modeling to figure out what interventions work, uh, what testing strategies work. And so one of the things that I would say is we've learned so much faster than anyone expected, and we've learned so much faster than we have in, with any other um, novel virus I've ever seen. And so to me, that gives a lot of hope about how many infections we can prevent and deaths that we can avoid in the future from what we've already learned so far. I want to get your opinion through your lens when you think about how this nation responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. What could we have done better? Well, you know, I... I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think that we, like I said, learned so much so quickly, even figuring out, you know, this is not really something from environmental transmission. It's not touching surfaces as much as we thought at the beginning. We learned really rapidly that this is aerosolized transmission. You know, this is happening indoors uh, when with people who are having no symptoms at all. And I think that looking forward now, understanding how much of this transmission is happening with people who are feeling totally healthy, you know, being indoors, spending time with other people, singing or talking, um, having a good time, that knowing now that that, that is the, the vulnerability that we have, I think going forward, there's an opportunity for us to use testing of asymptomatic people in a new way, uh, figure out how we can move things outside. There are so many policies now going forward that we can do to keep people safe now that we understand it better. Well, science understands this virus better than earlier. To that point, then, when you look at the fact that now kids are going back to school, whether it's K through 12 or at the institutions of higher learning, there is a concern, obviously, and it's all over the news, that oh, this is a turning point for this nation. It could either be good or it could be bad, but how schools decided to reopen their plans and all the phasing, it's going to be key and crucial, do you agree, going into 2021? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're still going to need testing even after a vaccine gets rolled out. You know, the vaccines won't be perfect. Uh, so we're still going to need testing for a very, very long time. With schools specifically, uh, you know, they don't fall into the normal framework that you would think of of who to be testing. Because you might think, okay, let's test people who have jobs where they're most likely to get infected. Or let's test factories where we don't want them to close because they'll have huge economic losses for that local area. And, and education doesn't fit neatly into that because it's an investment in our future. Uh, but you know, with, with younger kids, it really does affect economic productivity because of all these parents that have to be staying home to help their children with remote learning. And with colleges, I think it's been, they've been some of the hardest hit especially like you mentioned before, the historically black colleges and universities um, that are, you know, don't have the massive endowments that mm -hmm. other colleges have to fund the testing that is necessary to safely reopen these schools. And that's why I think it, it's, it's time for us to really check our values and, and decide what do we think is important, what is worth investing in and you know putting our resources into opening the parts of america that are important to us and so with the mission of testing for america which is a nonprofit, you all are saying you have to test keep testing that is crucial that's pretty much the mission of the of the organization yes it is this is a group of volunteers that are scientists business leaders you know researchers who you know, are just pulling together their resources, knowledge, working together and, you know, trying to take on the biggest challenges um, that are are worth addressing with testing, um, you know, not wanting to stand on the sidelines and watching. And so the one of the first pilot projects that's really been a demonstration leader has been at Delaware State University, mm -hmm. where they've done an incredible job um, bringing back their students safely, um, you, opening up residence halls in a safe way, and they're testing their students twice a week. It's a massive undertaking. And really, it's only made possible because of the incredible leadership from Dr. Tony Allen, the president, from the professors on campus, and really from the students who have been, you know, had the attitude of, we are willing to do whatever it takes to get back on campus. We want to be there, we want to learn. And so, you know, it's the students that are volunteering to um, run these pop-up testing sites that are that's happening on campus in parking lots and on the basketball court. Uh, it's been incredible to see this in action. Well, what's your response to someone that says, well, look, now Delaware State, they probably have a little less than, what, 5,000, maybe 6,000 students but for a large institution like 
here at the University of Georgia, or even Georgia Southern, which mm-hmm. has about 20,000 students. And officials will tell you that's impossible for us to do because of the mm-hmm. size of the, the institution. What's your response to that? I, it's not impossible, but it's incredibly challenging. Some of the barriers that you have to overcome are you know, affordability. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it requires incredible resources to test that many. Work we can be doing is pressuring, uh, putting pressure to lower the cost of each test. So you know, we, um, Medicare Medicaid was originally reimbursing you know, 100 to $150 per test. Um, we've had innovations come out like the NBA saliva direct test that they say only costs the supplies of $5. We've got the new um, Abbott rapid test that the government has bought up. That's a $5 test. And uh, I think there are other technologies out there like sequencing that, you know, when you're doing it at scale, when you're doing it in bulk, mm-hmm. like at a university setting, you so it. A sequencing wouldn't make sense. It's not affordable or efficient with a few random people running a sample. But when you're talking the thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, all of a sudden you can use a technology that's already exists, has been sitting around. These huge machines, you know, are you know not being used for COVID testing. You can pivot those. So I think that in thinking about the bigger schools, there's just the you have to get the cost of the drive the cost of the testing down, and then um, much more of it is the willingness to to take on the the labor of all the logistics um, that it takes to run a program like this. Because you have to be able to. I mean, the other attributes of a valuable program are you've got to get fast mm-hmm. time to results. You know, if, if it takes a week to get the positive test back, then it's too late. These kids have already passed it on to other people. And to that point of passing it on to other people, let's talk about the cities and towns. You may be able to do all the testing on campus, but then the kids go off campus to the store or what have you, or folks are coming onto the campus. So then you have that as well. So it sounds like there needs to be a some type of collaboration with the public health officials, not just at the university setting, but also in the region or the areas where these schools are, are located. Absolutely, absolutely. As much as we can encourage it to be more like a bubble as possible. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, what can we do to uh, keep these students on campus as much as possible? Many of the students have, have to have jobs off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we saw at some of these historically black colleges and universities that, you know, these students have to work to pay their way to get through. Uh, and so, you know, can we be offering more jobs on campus, potentially related to you know, pandemic safety and control and testing. Can we move some of those off-campus jobs to being on campus? Can we make more attractive um, food options in the cafeteria that, you know, so students are less tempted to go off campus to get, you know, food alternatives? What what creative ways can we be mm-hmm. uh, encouraging students to stay on campus and, you know, venture out? Because the transmission can go both ways, mm-hmm. you know, on campus infections can spread it out to the community or the community can, you know, pass it into. So I think it, it protects, um, it protects both places. The voice you hear is Dr. Blythe Adamson, an infectious disease epidemiologist with Testing for America. And we're talking about how colleges and universities should or suggestions on how they should reopen for 2021 for those that opted to online learning for this year. And I want to go back to Delaware State for a moment. You use them as a model that safely reopened. Have you been following up? Have they had any additional cases? They have had a very small number of cases. And one of the, um, one of the strengths is the action plan of when there is a positive case. They have a residence hall that is just for positive cases to recover. And so if a student who's living on campus finds out that they're positive, it's so important that they have housing security and food security and that they can continue their classes remotely without interruption Mm -hmm. because, you know, the top priority of Dr. Allen is to get all these students to the finish line of graduation. 
And so they have this action plan that isolates the student, but continues to help them thrive while they're recovering. Because, you know, in that age group, 70% of infected um, students, they don't experience any symptoms at all. Mm. Uh, And so having a safe place for them to go and still be able to learn uh, is really important to protect uh, the other students from becoming infected. With this partnership, that you all have this pilot program to help the HBCUs reopen safely. Walk our listeners through what you all are going to be able to offer to them. Well, Testing for America has partnerships with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund and the United Negro College Fund um, to really, I mean, the this volunteer group is, is helping these schools connect the dots. So helping them access protocols for how to run a testing program, Mm -hmm. connecting them with vendors. So if you're trying to access a huge, you know, supply, ongoing supply of tests that are accurate, you know, fast time to results, um, trying to get as low cost as possible, um, you know, we're helping connect um, these schools with vendors that meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, working really hard to find philanthropic donors to help pay for these testing costs because it's uh it is um it does require a tremendous amount of resources and so we're in a a resource that's available to support these schools because you know even though you know many of these schools are have gone made the decision to go virtual for the Mm -hmm. fall um this problem is not going to go away um in December and January, where if if you want to start planning now for how to have your campus open in January and, and have a safe place for students to go and learn, then you know COVID testing has to be a part of it. And there's planning we can do now to make that happen. Here in Georgia, you all have partnered with Savannah State, Fort Valley. And Albany State, and of course, Albany State down there in Doherty County, which which was considered a hot spot. Any chances you'll work with Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, or Spelman? Yeah, well, and Morehouse has had that wonderful $40 million from HHS that is enabling a testing program there. But, you know, really through the, the platform and resources that um, TMCF and UNCF, um, you know, all of these historically black colleges and universities have have access to the, this, you know, extra pool of, of knowledge and resources. And so, you know, I, I hope these schools and the students attending these schools know that there are people rooting for them and supporting them um, and wanting to help make a safe place for them to learn. Dr. Adamson, as we wrap up, and I asked you earlier about, you talked about how far science has come in terms of learning about this virus. When we talk about the path forward, as a scientist, I'll ask you, what does the other side look like? What are the metrics that you use to assess we're to the other side? To me, the other side looks like people who can be productive in their lives and feel and be safe at the same time. And so I think that 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 other side is probably going to be a combination of many things. It's going to be um, getting vaccines um, it's, and implementing that. You're finding a safe and effective vaccine and implementing it um, in the most efficient way possible, continuing to do testing. Um, it, it probably will be wearing masks uh, in certain situations for quite a long time and doing extra protections of the vulnerable. Um, increasing and improving clean air in lots of the different spaces that we are, you know, investments in good ventilation systems for a lot of our old buildings. Um, so to me, being on the other side means a combination of all of the things that we can do that will keep people safe from COVID. But many of these investments, I think, will also probably help reduce the burden from, you know, other viruses and, you know, respiratory illnesses that happen. So these are public health investments that are needed to to get people back to work and back to enjoying their families and friends. The other opportunity of being on the other side is what it's revealed about our health system and about healthcare disparities. Um, 
this has been so clearly revealed in the racial disparities that we've seen of who becomes a COVID case and of all the cases, then who is really being hospitalized and who is dying from COVID. And it's so extreme that, um, you know, separating out into those two pieces, who's becoming infected, it's you know, people who have essential jobs, you know, lower income people who still have to keep leaving their home and going to work to, to, for their livelihoods to support their families um, and you know, neighborhoods that are, uh, you know, hit much harder because they don't have the same resources. Mm-hmm. And then when we are seeing black and brown people become more and more likely to become infected, we're also seeing higher rates of hospitalization. And it's not just because of, um, you know, underlying comorbidities, you know, or, or obesity. It's, it's, not, it's not even completely explained by that. Um, you know, there's been a historically, you know, a disproportionate amount of access to good health care that I think is also a part of it. And so I hope that the other side of this also um, includes a health care system that acknowledges the historical inequities and makes uh, investments in um, how we can help everyone have um, equitable access to health care. I also want to get to, you mentioned it, the vaccine. You know, as a scientist, coming up with an effective, somewhat of an effective vaccine takes years. What concerns do you have as a scientist? Mm. Well, I have tremendous faith in uh, the NIAID COVID prevention network that is working on all of the government subsidized vaccine trial trials that are happening uh, in the pipeline and Mm -hmm. their mission to evaluate fully the safety and efficacy of each vaccine. So none of us know how long it will really take. Um, You know, we can all make our our best guesses, but I think if we want to fight to make this happen sooner, the best thing that we can all do is volunteer to be in a trial. That's the fastest way we're going to get this done by participating in this, you know, engaging communities to understand, you know, what are even the differences between the Mm. vaccines that we're testing? How can I help? Mm. Dr. Blythe Adamson is an infectious disease epidemiologist and economist who's also working with the group Testing for America. Dr. Adamson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. At the time of this broadcast, we're less than 60 days away from the November election. And if you're already tired of the TV and social media political ads, well, as the saying goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, candidates will use these next few months to make their case through those ads, of course, social media, maybe even some canvassing. But it's estimated about 10% of voters are undecided. Now, that's according to a Monmouth University poll released in July. Now, here in Atlanta, a local tech startup aims to inform more voters on local elections. It's called Branch. And I spoke to the founder back in June. Now, this was ahead of the primary elections and shortly after the company had launched. And then with this election cycle coming up, just felt a lot of pressure to do something soon because it was kind of a now or never sort of thing. So decided to leave my job and upon leaving and upon kind of facing this this deadline with the election really started looking at is this the best way to to help make a difference within the political realm and at the time me and some of my teammates I was working with had been doing a lot of research and interviews with voters and campaigns really just trying to understand this space better after a lot of that consideration we decided to change the concept from its original concept Mm -hmm. dealing with political polarization to something that was more geared towards state and local elections so did voters utilize this online information portal we'll find out walter lay joins me once again to talk about how things went and also for november walter welcome back to the program i really appreciate it hey rose thanks for having me back 
So listen, back in June, when your company was still fairly new, it's now just a few months later. So how much has changed for the company, for the startup? You've added some folks. Because last time, I think it was you and two other people. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, It's been, what, two, two and a half months, which for us is like, like three years in, in startup time, <laughs> so a lot, a lot has happened. Um, and really, the biggest thing before we talked, we were gearing up for the June 9th election. It was our very first launch. Um, we thought we had a really interesting concept, um, but there was a lot of reasons to believe that you know it might not work. Um, and so the election was really a big test for us, and that's probably the biggest thing is uh, just launching and really seeing the traction that we got leading up for the election. Um, so. We launched about a month before the June 9th primary election. Just over that month, we had 17,000 people come mm-hmm. to our site um, and, and utilize Branch in order to be more informed about their state and local elections. And you know, for a primary election, no less, which oftentimes get ignored. So um, it's been very exciting just to see the traction and see people um, actually using it. And I think for a lot of people, they have this mentality of, you know, finally something like this exists to make this easier. Let's back up a little bit because you said you all weren't certain if people would be using it and how engaging it would be for folks. So the night before the primary, were you nervous? Were you thinking, do we have enough information? I mean, were you sweating? (laughs) Take me through that moment for you. Yeah, so we had an advisor who um, around January when we were kind of pivoting towards this concept. We had an advisor who um, has worked in campaigns all of his life. He's a super smart guy. He's a published author on the book. He, um, he used to work for a you know, high profile uh, presidential campaign back in 2016. And he essentially told us, you know, you're wasting your time with this. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you know, these elections are important, but people never pay attention to state and local politics. Um, and so really that was, that was the big crux is, you know, if we make it easier, will people pay attention? Um, and yeah, leading up to the election, it was really the last week that we started to, you know, see our, our daily visitor count go from you know 200 to 300 a day up to a thousand a day, and then 2,000, and then that very last day um, on election day, I think we had something like 4,000 people come into the site, um, and a lot of people, you know, were people that were standing in line, you know, <laughs> or five-hour wait times. What a had time! Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it was really awesome. We actually went out on election day and, you know, just uh, handed out some waters in line, some, you know, cards where people could write down their choices so that they had something to bring in uh, into the ballot box. And we'd be walking up to people uh, and they'd, you know, turn around their phone and they'd already have branch pulled up and they'd be listening to it on, on their phone. So it was really cool to see it take off and, and just uh, see firsthand the sort of positive impact that um, it had on people. And we should let folks know who may not be familiar with Branch, but take them through what Branch is. Like if they log on, what will they see? Yeah, so the whole concept is just making it a lot easier for you to understand, you know, what's going to be on your ballot um, in terms of, you know, ballot measures, amendments, also in terms of the the sorts of offices that people are running for, you know, who's running for what, uh, what ideas they're running on, who's funding them, and ultimately why it impacts you is, is kind of the big thing that we used to try and tie it together, how this shows up in your day-to-day life. So you go in, uh, you enter in your address, and we let you know, you know, here are the uh, seven, eight, nine districts that you belong to, here are all the races that are going to be in your upcoming election. And then we kind of walk you through, again, who's running for each of those offices. You have the chance to select you know, who you want to vote for for each of those based on the information that we have um, and just make it a lot easier. So instead of you know, spending 30, 40 minutes researching each office, now you're talking you know, five minutes to, to make a choice for an office. And so, Walter, we should note for folks that for the local elections, you all weren't able to get every local race in there. But you're primarily talking about Fulton County, City of Atlanta, and obviously some of the state races, correct? Yeah, so for this last primary election, our main coverage was um, parts of DeKalb County, Fulton County, and then any sort of statewide races that you know uh, overlapped with those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really one of the big pieces of feedback that we got was, um, you know, we, we pay attention a lot to you know what our users want and what they're asking for. And so one of the big you know, next steps, improvements that we're making this upcoming cycle is expanding our coverage. So for this upcoming election, we'll have full coverage for Cobb, Gwinnett, DeKalb, and Fulton counties, all of Georgia's statewide races, and any sort of, you know, races that overlap with those areas. 
Um, and then in addition to that, a lot of people kind of spoke about needing coverage earlier because they're you know now voting absentee, mm -hmm. so they need ways that they can uh, you know fill out their absentee ballot um, you know a month before the election. And so our coverage this year is uh, or for this election is going live a lot sooner. And again, just to to make it a lot easier for people to to use this, no matter how they're deciding to vote. Now, Walter, we have a special election coming up this month, which is for the, the unexpired term of the late Congressman John Lewis. Were you all able to get any candidate information for that? I know it's not state or local, but did folks want you to do that? Because most of these folks are local. Yeah, so the biggest thing we're doing with that is we're going to focus on putting coverage out through our different social media channels um, as opposed to through our website. Um, so definitely encourage people to kind of uh, check that out as we get closer to that date. Um, but really our focus right now is focusing on all of the elections that are going to be on voters' ballot for the November election. So, Walter, let's get the final total from the time that you were on this program. How many people or how many users or how many clicks did you all get on that day or even from the time you're on this program to the primary? So our total since this since the time we've been on the show, we um, had the June 9th primary and then again the August runoff election for the primary. And so in total for those, we had around 19,000 new users or unique users um, that came into our site. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really kind of the, the summary number of where we're at right now. And just based off of that, based on the fact that we went from you know zero to that 19,000 um, over the course of these two smaller elections, we're pretty confident that uh, we'll hit an even larger number for the November election, um, especially with kind of all of the, the new features that we're adding and uh, just ways to make it easier for people to uh, to vote. What does that say to you about maybe it is a misconception that people don't care about state and local elections? Yeah, and really it ties together a lot of things that we have learned. So, I mean, number one, people are paying attention in a way that they I don't think ever have before. You just look at the voter turnout numbers and in 2018 for the same uh, primary election, we had 1.5 million voters, around 1.5 million voters turnout in Georgia. And just for this past primary election, we had 2 million voters, which is a huge increase um, just you know to go from year to year. Um, and so I think holistically people in Georgia are paying attention. Um, and, and you have to keep in mind too, there's no people weren't turning out for, you know, the presidential race because at that point they didn't really have any options there. You know, mm -hmm. people were turning out for these state and these local offices. Um, so I think people are paying attention in a way that really hasn't existed before. Um, and just based on the sort of traction that we're seeing, the sort of messages that people are sending us, there's this sentiment that this is something that people have been waiting for for a really long time. Um, and it makes sense, you know, any time that you can, you know, take something that would take somebody four or five, six hours on their own, um, of research that, you know, they, most people don't do, but if they do do it, it takes them, you know, five, six hours of their own time to do this sort of research still leaves them with questions at the end of the day. Um, and you make that something that you, know, you cut it down to, to 30 minutes, 45 minutes um, to make a really confident, informed vote. Um, I think that's, you know, that's a win. And, and that's something that we're seeing a lot of people um, both through the data and just the ways that people are responding to this, um, people are are supporting it. And if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Walter Lay, the founder of Branch. It's a local startup that provides voter information on state and local elections. And Walter, for listeners who say, well, how do we know that you all are being fair in the information that you gather from these candidates? You have a nonpartisan promise and you pledge journalistic integrity. Now, how do you ensure that those standards are being met for those who are coming to the site? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I want to emphasize to people is we really ask the same exact questions <laughs> to each of the candidates that are running. Um, and one of the unique things that we're doing this upcoming cycle is we're actually putting the um, full audio from our interviews um, and from all of the research that we do. We're putting that directly on the site so that people can hear, you know, hear the questions that we're asking. Um, and you can see we're asking each candidate for each race, you know, the same sort of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't offer any sort of, you know, favoritism or anything like that. Um, we also ask about policy issues and, uh, you know, in a very straightforward way. Our team consists of, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents. Um, and that's really important just to make sure that whatever we're releasing ultimately is something that makes each of our team members happy mm -hmm. um, so that we have that kind of 
baked into our team structure to make sure that, you know, we're not leaning one way or another. And Walter, what information are you all collecting from the user? Because I imagine you all need that. I mean, companies like your startup, you need those metrics to either better the product or take a look at it and say, oh, you know, we've got mostly Democrats coming or mostly Republicans coming. What information are y'all collecting? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, all the information is is very straightforward. You can see what we collect as you kind of go through um, the site. Just to, to be upfront about this, all of our information that we analyze for these sort of purposes, you know, creating a, a better product, um, things like that, it's all anonymized. Um, so if you go in and you enter your address, uh, we have no way to know, okay, this person now lives at this address because we anonymize it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a really key step. But yeah, a lot of what we look at is making sure from the, the high level data perspective that, you know, we have uh, equal representation of audiences that identify as Republicans and Democrats or independents um, that we have, you know, people from all different zip codes that are aware of the app. And if we have, you know, one geographic area of Atlanta that's missing that, that mm -hmm. doesn't know about this and we see that from our data, we can go to them and, and we can, you know, do some specific outreach to that community. Um, so really what we look at is ways that we can um, use this data from a high level view to make sure that the product is working, that we can improve the product, but that we can make sure it's working for everybody and that everybody knows about it. And Walter, from the primary to the runoff, what race did folks want to know more information about? So specifically for the runoff election was unique because all of the elections that made it to the runoff were county elections. Mm -hmm. um, all, for all of the statewide elections, we didn't have any of those statewide elections that actually persisted mm -hmm. um, beyond the runoff. And really especially with um kind of where we are in 2020 um, the main elections that people were paying attention to were the elections for the sheriff's race and the district attorney mm -hmm. um, those are probably the two that we saw kind of the most traction and especially here in, in fulton county mm -hmm. um, where both of those elections went to a runoff um, and they were both kind of highly contested races um, so that was i would say the the main thing that we we saw people paying attention to now, let's get ready for November. From what I understand right now, you are still collecting information. How soon will voters be able to go to the site and see for November? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're in the thick of the candidate interviews right now. Um, I, no exaggeration, have eight today um, that, that I'm conducting. So a lot of work that we're doing to, to prepare everybody and to make sure that we have good resources available early. Um, September 22nd right now is the date that this will be publicly available to, to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely encourage people to kind of stay tuned for that. Um, in addition to that, we're also releasing a couple of new features that are going to make it really helpful for people um, that, you know, really want to get serious about understanding candidate platforms and kind of what candidates are running on. Um, and we're packaging that in kind of a, a paid version of Branch called uh, Branch Plus, which is a new thing that we're introducing and really it's meant to address kind of some of the most requested things um, such as understanding candidate platforms. So a lot of people talked about how they'll hear a candidate talking about their healthcare platform and hear terms like, you know, Medicare for all or expand Medicaid or public option and they don't know what that means. So a big thing that we're doing is introducing a way that people can, you know, directly within the website understand kind of the policy jargon that some candidates use and, and really get serious about understanding what these policy are, uh, these policy terms that you might have heard a bunch of times um, and offering a way for people to do that. So that's one of the other big things that we're going to be releasing um, along with that September 22nd date. Well, here comes the other question that you know I'm going to ask. Money-wise, how you all doing? That's fair. Um, really, our, our goal for this upcoming election is to figure out how to make Branch you know, financially sustainable. Mm -hmm. We are still an early stage startup, um, and we want to be around for the long haul. Um, so we're introducing a couple of you know exciting things, Branch Plus being one of them, that I would definitely encourage people to check out um, for people that are interested in really getting serious about voting. Um, another thing that we're doing is we're introducing a way for companies to sign up for Branch Plus on behalf of their employees. So to provide this as you know, a benefit to empower their employees to become more civically engaged and really show that, you know, as a company, they're invested in um, helping civic engagement in Atlanta become easier for people. Um, and the biggest thing that we're doing, too, is we're, we're taking these 
branch plus from individuals and also that companies sign up for. And we're working with a lot of our nonprofit partners, our community organization partners, and we're going to construct essentially a buy one, give one model mm-hmm. where anytime a company signs up for a group of their employees, that same uh, group you know, number will be um, then donated to a community uh, nonprofit that's doing this sort of civic engagement outreach work. Um, so really we're trying to make something that's holistically beneficial so that when people sign up, you know, branch is able to have some finances to become more financially sustainable, but we're also able to give back um, and empower other parts of uh, Atlanta. Now your background as a software architect, data scientist, all that, the financial technology industry, that's all in your background. How do you feel now being the founder of a startup and where it is now? Is this what you imagine, Walter? I would say probably not. I, I think in a lot of ways, the, the journey has been really uh, surprising. It's been a lot more challenging than I could have anticipated, um, which is kind of the, the journey that you know I think most founders go through. Mm-hmm. But really one of the main thing that has surprised me is just how uh, supportive the community has been our community of users and also just the community of Atlanta. I think last time I was on this show, we had probably five or six people reach out and you know just applaud the sort of work that we were doing and, and encouraging it, uh, which I think is very unique. There's a bunch of people within our team that um, are just interested in, in being involved and, and helping out just because they really support the mission. And so it's it's been really interesting because I bring to this my own set of skills and, and passion and drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but just seeing that matched and a lot of times exceeded by other people that that want to get involved um, that want to help kind of spread this mission has been really amazing so um, it has been a an amazing sort of community effort that i didn't expect and that's been one of the just the main surprising things walter lay founder of branch it's a local tech startup that informs voters on local and state elections walter thanks for taking the time continued success to you and your team and information that you all are providing to citizens. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose, and thanks for having me back on. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. and listen whenever you want because Closer Look is now available As a podcast, just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.